Let's begin. This is the fifth lesson in the series. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is a passage that has very special significance to most of the people who were in this room because people, uh, people here who took a stand on doing exactly what Paul says and paid a price for it, um, which I think, uh, so it's something that's very close to, to, to many of our hearts, but this is a, it's a basic foundational concept and it's one that I think most churches today uh, either don't understand or just don't want to deal with at all. So this is a, it's a very clear and direct passage. Paul's instructions are very clear, but it, they're hard to implement. And honestly, there are very, very few churches that do that. So uh, uh, I want to take the time to read the, read the chapter and then go through it. I think that there are some, both looking at the main point that Paul is making, and there are a lot of, of other gems that are in the passage that I want to uh, take advantage of while we're here. Amen. So I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm, I'm reading here from the New King James translation. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a short chapter, just 13 verses. <clears throat> and here Paul changes the direction and the focus of the letter. The first four chapters, he's dealing primarily with the issue of division and disunity in the church. And here he turns his attention to a very different and very dangerous problem that the church is facing. Let's start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from, uh, from you, from among you. For indeed, as absent in the body, present in the spirit, for I indeed, as absent body of present spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or a viler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? 
do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul's dealing with a problem within the church that's pretty severe. Um, there's something which, to me, is in a twisted way kind of encouraging about this to realize the church was never perfect, that he didn't say you're not the church of God, you're not the church of Christ. They had some severe problems in the church. They had basically incest going on in the church, and they weren't dealing with it. So they faced some rather severe problems. So the fact that we're facing problems doesn't mean we're not the church of God. All it means is that Satan is attacking the church. Satan said that he wanted to sift Peter like wheat, and Satan is always trying to destroy the church and really turn it into a mockery, turn it into a, turn it into a, a giant joke in the eyes of the world. <clears throat> um, now, as you read the passage, and it's tough to be, to be neutral because as I'm reading it, I'm inflecting my voice to try to capture what I think Paul is saying here. I don't want to, to, to twist it from what he actually is saying, but is the tenor of what Paul's saying, is it instruction? Is it something that they don't understand that they, he's trying to explain to them? Or is it more like a rebuke that you should have known better? Why on earth are you doing this? Okay? I'd say it's definitely more of a rebuke. If you look at the wording he says, he's, you know, don't you know why are you doing this? That's, that's the tenor of what he's saying here. So his, his attitude is you should have known better than to do this. He says even the Gentiles don't put up with this stuff. That's how bad it is. You're worse than the Gentiles are. So Paul is, is an attitude. Paul's upset, and, and his attitude is one of more than correction. I think it's one of rebuking that they're doing something that they should have known was wrong. Uh, and his primary focus here, it's not that there's an individual in the church who needs to repent, which is true. His primary focus is he's addressing the church itself. Why? Not, he's not writing why. Uh, you know, disciple so-and-so, are you involved in this sin? He's saying, why, church, are you tolerating this sin? Why, church, are you putting up with this in your midst? So he talks more specifically in the next chapter about the sin of immorality itself. Here he's talking about tolerating or not dealing with serious sin in the midst of the church. He says they should have known that they should put the wicked person out of the church. Now, Let's back up a moment, and, and I want to ask uh, you the question I was asking myself when I started digging into this passage. Why should they have known that they should put a wicked person out of the church? In the Gospels, did Jesus anywhere ever give instructions about that? Did he ever say, listen, uh, apostles, if you have somebody who's wicked in your midst, you need to put them out of the church, you need to make sure you do this in the future. Did Jesus ever teach that 
in any of the parables? Did he ever teach it? Uh, is it part of the Sermon on the Mount? Is it part of the Great Commission? Is there anywhere that Jesus taught that you need to put people, wicked people, out of your fellowship? Yeah. Jesus, Jesus didn't. Uh, well, actually, Jesus didn't in the Gospels, but there is a place where Jesus did it, where Jesus did give instructions about putting a wicked person out of the church. You think about it, it's in Revelation chapter 2. Let's turn there. This is when he's addressing the church in Thyatira. It's always good to start with Jesus. What did he teach? And then, and then take a look at what instructions Paul gave in light of that. So I can't find anything in the Gospels, nothing I can think of, where he gave that instruction. Not Matthew 18. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, if, yeah that, that's true. Yeah, that's, you're, actually, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's, that's true. Matthew 18, he does talk about that. He says that if a brother sins... You, you're, you're correct. He does, he, does, he does teach that. I completely forgot about that. That Matthew 18, he says that if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. And if he doesn't repent, you tell it to the whole church and you treat him as a pagan tax cook. So actually Jesus did teach that in Matthew 18. And shame on me for not thinking about that. So Jesus did teach it. In, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, speaking to the church in Thyatira, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. To the angel in the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, and faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, some translations will say tolerate, same thing, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I'll cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and will give to each one of you according to your works. So here Jesus is visiting the church in Thyatira, and he's saying a lot of great things. Your, your works, your love, your faith, your servants, your patience, you're, you're in a better place than you were originally. You're growing in all of these things, but I have one thing against you, um, that you are tolerating, you're allowing this woman Jezebel in the church. So, Jesus is very concerned about, about this when he's addressing the church too. The church can be doing very well, but they have to deal with serious sin in the church because it will spread like yeast. When Paul addresses the problem, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he gives 
two reasons why they should have known that they should have put the wicked person out of the church. And I'm going to look at the second reason first, which is very direct, and then we'll look at the first reason after that. In verse 12, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges? Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. That passage right there comes from Moses. From It's repeated several places in Moses from, I don't know, chapters 19 to 24 that I can think of, 17 to 24, four or five times. He talks about uh, uh, somebody who's involved in serious sin in the community, and he says, put the, put, put the wicked way from, from out from among you. And it's a, this is a direct quotation from the Septuagint here, what it says in the Old Testament. So he, he says they should have known from Moses. Now, let me ask you another question here. And this may sound like a really dumb question. How do you know what sexual immorality is? How are the Corinthians supposed to know what is sexual immorality? Is that a self-evident term? If you said to people here in Boston, sexual immorality is a sin, a lot of people would agree with you, but they define sexual immorality differently. Okay, I remember going to a religious leader and asking him, is sex before marriage a sin? He says, well, as long as you really care about the person, you're not just using them, and you're actually considering getting married to them, that it's, it's probably not a sin. As long as, as, long as you're uh, being, being a, a nice person, and just, not just using somebody and casting them off to the side. So that was the person's definition of sexual morality. Uh, many churches will say homosexual sex, as long as it's monogamous, that that's not sexual immorality. So... When he's talking about sexual immorality, when he uses the term to the Corinthians, how do they know what he means? How do you know what is and what isn't sexual immorality? Um, Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. In in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we have the the Gentile conversion of Cornelius and his household. And then Paul and Barnabas in chapter 14 are traveling around and taking the gospel to Gentiles. And a problem comes up where in chapter 15, they're being challenged by some Christians who are from a Pharisee background saying, wait a minute, if, if, if these Gentiles want to become Christians, they have to obey the law of Moses. They have to get circumcised and they have to follow the law. And there's a convening of the apostles in Jerusalem. James is there. Paul and Barnabas are there. Peter is there. And they're trying to deal with, okay, how much of the law of Moses do you really have to follow? All of it? None of it? What do we do with the law of Moses? So I want to pick up in in chapter 15, In verse 4, so this is talking about Paul and Barnabas. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. 
But some of the sect of the Pharisees who, be, who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now, of course, this is talking about the conversion of Cornelius' household. Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 9, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So Peter's backing up Paul here saying, hey, Holy Spirit came down on the Gentiles, that they don't have to follow the law of Moses. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as are written. And here he quotes from Amos. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and I will build its ruins. And I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who were called by his name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So, do they have to follow the law of Moses? No. No, they don't have to follow all of it. They don't have to get circumcised. But he says, hey, Moses has read all over, and there are these four things from Moses that they do have to follow. And the letter that goes out, <clears throat> down in verse 28, the message is sent out with, with, uh, with Paul. It says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you'll do well. So four parts of the law of Moses that they insist that the Gentiles keep. They don't have to keep circumcision. They don't have to keep the dietary laws. But they do have to do what Moses said about sexual immorality. Now, what did Moses say about sexual immorality? Moses actually defined sexual immorality in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And let's see what he said because it ties into the story here. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 22, let's start there. Deuteronomy chapter 22. 
For those who are reading in a, a version coming out of the Septuagint, the numbering may be off by a verse, but you'll find, you'll find it there. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, start reading in verse 22 and 23. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you should put away the evil from Israel. So that's one aspect of sexual morality, which is obviously adultery. Mm -hmm. One of the people, they're, they're married, but they're having sex with somebody else. Verse 23. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So there's that, that phrase, you shall put away the evil from among you, which is what exactly what Paul is quoting in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 30, it says, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. And this is exactly the sin that Paul is saying that they are tolerating in the church in Corinth. In verse 30, I think in the Septuagint will be chapter 23, verse 1. One of you, uh, David, will look a little puzzled there. So <laughs> you got it. Good. Uh, let's continue in Leviticus chapter 18. Now we're, now we're going to really deal with uh, some, some hardcore teachings on sexual morality from the law of Moses. The, what did Moses consider to be sexual immorality? Because this was not the world's view. Leviticus chapter 18, <laughs> uh, starting in verse 1. Now, it's important to understand that God's view of sexual morality has never been lined up with the world's view of sexual immorality. God's concern when the Israelites went into the land of Canaan that they would start to pick up the sexual moral practices of the Canaanites. And he says, don't do that. These are the laws that you need to follow. Don't get contaminated and polluted by the world by picking up their practices and their standards. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 18 starting in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, according to the doings uh, of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. So he says, don't follow the moral practices of Egypt where you came from, and don't follow the practices of Canaan where you're going. Now, now he gets more specific. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It's your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father or daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten of your father, she is your sister, 
You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, since she is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. For they are near of kin to her. It is a wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. So this is basically it's laws on incest. Right? You can't marry your daughter, your granddaughter, your sister, your aunt. You can't marry people who are close relatives, unlike what was the practices of Egypt or Canaan. Let's pick it up again in verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon you, and the land vomits out its inhabitants." You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either you or the na uh, 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 of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. So there you have it. Moses lays out the rules for incest, for bestiality, having sex with animals, and also homosexuality that these were all considered sexual immorality by God. In Corinth, where the people were that Paul's writing to, that was not the sexual, that those are not the sexual standards there either. Homosexuality was considered to be a perfectly legitimate expression of love in ancient Corinth. And that's what Paul says later on. He says, don't be sodomites, and, and such, such were some of you, that, that they came, people came out of that background who were in the church in Corinth. Uh, I want to read you, just to give you an idea of the world that is, that is around the time of Paul. This is a quote from uh, a man named Vardasan, who was, who was he wrote in, in Syriac, in ancient Syriac. He was from Edessa, which is east of Jerusalem. And he wrote about the practices of the world of his day to give you an idea. And uh, Justin's here, so he starts off, he said, I'm going to start off in the east. He starts with the, the series, which would be the Chinese, the Chinese people. And, uh, and he, he says good things about them. This is actually, this is, he's engaging in an argument. Uh, so Bartasan lived from about 150 to 230, so he's pretty early on. And he's talking about the practices all over the world. If somebody said, well, the reason that one country is different from another in its practices is because of the stars and the heavens and things like that. And he says, look, the same skies over everybody and the practices of all these countries are different. And it, it, and, but then he, he talks about the practices of all the other nations. Then he talks about the practices of the Christians wherever they are. 
and this is very insightful. So it'll give you an idea of what was considered to be lawful as far as sexual practices in the ancient world, not too far from the time that, that Paul was writing. So he talks about the series. He says good things about them. He talks about the, the Brahmins, the Brahmin caste in India. He says that they don't get involved in, uh, in uh, uh, that neither the, the, the Brahmins nor the, um, the series people would be involved in um, uh, idolatry or in harlotry, in prostitution. Then he turns to the Persians. He says, the Persians, again, have made themselves laws permitting them to take as wives their sisters and their daughters and their daughters' daughters. And there are some who go further to take even their mothers. Some of these said the Persians are scattered abroad away from their country and are found in media, the country of the Parthians and Egypt and Phrygia. So he talks about that's the practice of the, of the, of the Persians. The Bactrians, who I believe live, would be corresponding to northern India, Afghanistan, that area there, uh, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Among the Bactrians, who are called the Kashani, the women adorn themselves with godly raiment of men and with much gold and costly jewels. And the slaves and handmaidens minister to them more than, than to their husbands. And then it goes on and it says, These women, moreover, do not practice continency, but have intimacies with their slaves, with strangers, and those who go to that country and their husbands don't find fault with them, nor have the women themselves any fear of punishment because the Kashani look upon their wives only as mistresses. So that's the attitude that they have in that part of the world. Uh, so he, he goes through the countries of the east, and then he turns his attention to the north, which would be in Europe. He says, such are the laws of the people of the east, but in the north, in the country of the Gauls, which would be France today. Uh, one translation, unfortunately, Ava says the Germans, so it's, uh, so it's one or the other, somebody from Northern Europe. It says, the Gauls and their neighbors, such youth among them as are handsome, the men take as wives, and they even have feasts on the occasion, and it is not considered by them a disgrace nor reproach because the laws which prevail among them. So, Basically, they're taking boys, men are taking boys, and, and having, having sex with them. That's perfectly okay in uh, certain regions of the West. The laws of the Britons, so this goes all the way to the British Isles. Among the Britons, many men take one and the same wife. The laws of the Parthians. Among the Parthians, on the other hand, one man takes many wives and all of them keep only to him because of the law which has been made in that country. So the, the idea of what's lawful sexually is all over the place. He talks about in one country, uh, one of the other countries, that if a woman is involved in immorality, they'll kill her. Uh, he said, so... Uh, if a woman is having sex with the people she's not married to, they'll stone her to death. So there's all these different practices, homosexuality, polygamy, polyandry, incest. There's some part of the world where all of those things are considered okay. And then he draws a distinction between the nations and the Christians which are scattered in all of those nations. <coughs> And he says, and what shall we say of this new race of us Christians 
whom Christ at his advent planted in every country and in every region. For lo, wherever we are, we are all called after one and the same name of Christ, Christians. On one day, the first day of the week, we assemble ourselves together, and on the days of the readings, we abstain from taking sustenance. They'd be fasting. The brethren who were in Gaul do not take males for wives, nor do those who in Parthia take two wives, nor do those who are in Judea circumcise themselves, nor do our sisters among the Gelae consort with strangers, nor do brethren who are in Persia take their daughters for wives, nor do those who are in Media abandon their dead or bury them alive or give them as food to dogs, nor do those who are in Edessa kill their wives or their sisters when they commit impurity, but they withdraw from them and give them over to the judgment of God. Nor do those who are in Hatra stone thieves to death, but wherever they are, in whatever place they are found, the laws of the several countries do not hinder them from obeying the laws of their sovereign, Christ. So, it's a picture of what the church was like in the beginning. That, they, we, that the Christians did not follow the customs and practices of the different lands that they were in, but they followed a completely different set of rules uh, of Christ. So get, give us an idea then that the idea of sexual morality we're facing within my lifetime. Now homosexual marriage is considered completely legal in Massachusetts, and to say anything to the contrary is, uh, is considered practically a, a violation of someone's civil rights. Um, but... It, it's it's comforting to me to know that in the beginning, this was the same thing. In Europe, in the church, the same thing was going on. You had problems with, with all kinds of sexual immorality and different sexual practices. But we follow the teachings of, of Jesus. So the attitude of the Christians was they would follow the law of Moses as amended by Jesus. So Moses defined what things were were. were Immoral. There are a lot of things. One of the questions, questions Christians have to face is, what do you do with the Old Testament? Well, as far as the moral laws of the Old Testament, four things are binding on us Gentile Christians. <clears throat> sexual, no sexual immorality is one of them. Moses defines what sexual immorality is. Jesus uh, altered some of those teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. He says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give us her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. That's right after what we were reading before. But I say to you that whoever divorces wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So right there, Jesus is saying that he's changing what Moses taught about sexual immorality. Moses would allow polygamy. Moses would allow a man who had one wife to get a second wife. Moses would also allow a man to put away his wife, and then the man and the wife, and then the wife could be remarried also. There was no limitation on the man not having another wife to start off with. Jesus 
in his teaching that God created marriage in the beginning, one man, one woman, spiritual and physical union, what God has joined together, let, non, let man not separate. Jesus restored God's original teaching of the permanence of marriage, which, which did away with polygamy because he said the man, if, a, if, if, a, if somebody marries a divorced person, they're committing adultery. So obviously you can only be married to one person at a time and it's until death do you part. So Jesus did away with, with, with Moses' allowance on polygamy and also with what he, he changed what Moses said on divorce and remarriage. The other thing he says is you don't resist an evil person. So obviously you're not going to be stoning people, but you'll do exactly what Vardasan said that the Christians would do, that if, if, if their own sister were involved in immorality, you would put her out of the church. You wouldn't stone her. So, uh, so that's, that's basic teachings of immorality in the church, what Moses taught as amended by Jesus when Jesus changed what Moses said. There are a lot of things in what Moses taught that Jesus really didn't say anything about, didn't change it. Uh, give you an example. Uh, did Jesus say anything about how to have a good marriage or how to raise kids? I can't think of anything. He said, if your marriage goes bad, you can't divorce your wife, except in the case of, of marital unfaithfulness. But he didn't really tell us how to be good husbands or wives particularly, other than to reinforce what Moses said. You love your neighbor as yourself, that all the law and the prophets hang on that, but he's basically backing up what Moses said. The New Testament isn't a handbook on how to raise children because Moses and Solomon pretty much covered the bases on that one. So uh, a lot of what's in the Old Testament carries forward. So going back to the story, he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, a man has his father's wife. Now, that sounds exactly what Moses was talking about in, in Deuteronomy here. So there's a couple possibilities here. He's having sexual relationships with either with his mother or his stepmother. I would guess it was a stepmother, but I don't know. And it's either happening while his father is still alive or after his father had died. But in any case, it's very clear from Moses that this is not allowed. Um, so whatever the particular sin was, it was so offensive that even the pagans in Corinth wouldn't do this. And this was a city that was notorious for cult prostitution. It was an immoral city and uh, pagan, pagan cult prostitution with, with uh, massive uh, immorality going on there. So, Paul assumed that by quoting the passage from Deuteronomy, put away the evil person from among you, that was part of Moses' teaching on immorality. He tells what's immorality, and Moses said what to do when you're facing immorality, which is you cast the wicked person from among your midst. So, just to recap, sexual immorality is addressed by Moses, which would include fornication, adultery, incest, bestiality, homosexuality. All right? 
Jesus further clarified it by uh, uh, outlawing polygamy and no remarriage uh, after divorce while the spouse is still alive. So that's the basic standards for sexual immorality for Christians. And those who are immorality need to be expelled from the community, just like Moses said in Deuteronomy 22. Just like Jesus said, as David pointed out in Matthew 18, just as Jesus said to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. Paul gives a second reason for putting the, putting the wicked person out of the church, which is it's rather unusual to Western ears. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, this is the first reason he gives. says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old lump that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let's keep the feast not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the second argument he takes from Deuteronomy 22. Immorality. Cast out the wicked person from among you. The first one he takes from the book of Exodus. And here he's saying, well, isn't it obvious? The Passover lamb has been slain, therefore you eat the bread without yeast. Isn't that obvious enough right there? Doesn't everybody get that? I mean, how could you have missed that one? That's the first argument he goes in with. Which tells you that Paul and the people in Corinth were reading the Old Testament a little different than most Western-thinking Americans do today. That they were, they believe, they saw in the Old Testament not only foreshadowings of Christ, of the coming of Christ, but also buried in the foreshadowings and the types of the Old Testament were extremely important lessons for us Christians today. Let's, let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. The other thing, he just assumes that, I mean, of course, you, you, of course they knew the books of Exodus and um, Deuteronomy. He's writing to the Christians says, of course, they knew that like the back of their hand. So he, he just made, just making a passing reference to it, they would certainly understand everything he's talking about. Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> so this was his first argument, the first reason why they should know that they can't tolerate sexual immorality in the church. It goes back to the story. First, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. Now just, just pause for a second here. This is obviously after the first nine plagues in Egypt, right before the tenth plague, the plague of the Passover, that this instruction is being given. 
Verse 4, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbors next to his house take according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make the count uh, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house where they eat it. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with your belt in your waist, your sandals in your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through Egypt on that night and will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel. Um, down to verse 18. Down to verse 17. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your house, and since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger of the native, a stranger or of, or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. And uh, another detail from the story. Um, in verses 46 and 47. In one house, this is about the Passover, it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it, when a stranger dwells with you and, and uh, wants to keep the Passover, Lord, let all his males be, be circumcised and let him, let him come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. Uh, so, now, we understand that the Passover lamb is Jesus. The blood of the lamb is what saves the people. The Israelites are the kingdom of God. And, of course, the lamb is a male without blemish, 
killed on the twilight of the Passover, the night that Jesus was sacrificed. And the only ones who can participate in this meal are those who've been circumcised. Now, Christians, we have been, we have been uh, uh, circumcised through baptism, putting off the, the, the flesh. And then he says over and over and over, and he says, don't break any of the bones. None of Jesus' bones were broken when he was on the cross. So this is all foreshadowing Jesus. But then there's this tremendous emphasis on, and don't eat anything with leaven in it for the next seven days. And he says twice, and anybody who eats leaven shall be thrown out of the community. He doesn't say anybody who doesn't eat the Passover will be thrown out of the community. He says anybody, and he says it twice. Why the big deal? I think I counted 13 times in Exodus 12 and 13 where he either talks about, about don't eat anything with leaven or eat only unleavened bread. He's over and over and over, he's pounding this. And, and everyone has to be cut off. Uh, what does leaven represent in the story? Obviously. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What does leaven represent? Sin. It spreads. It grows. I lived in a co-op in California when I was in college, and, and I learned how to make bread for 60 people at a time. And you take a small amount of yeast... And you mix it in with the dough, and then you wait hours, and the whole thing rises. And somehow or other, it just spreads and leavens the whole thing. So you have nice, fluffy, it's not real, it's not hard, it's nice and fluffy and light. So I learned how to make yeasted bread back in my 20s. And with a, with a, massive, a massive flour and water and a small amount of yeast. And then you make, make, or make sourdough bread where you take some of the old sourdough starter, but it's the same thing. It spreads throughout the whole loaf by itself. You don't have to do it. It gets there. And uh, so that's, the, that's the, the teaching is taught in two ways. One is a Western style of thinking. It says, if don't commit sexual immorality, a man has his father's wife, that's sexual immorality, and you, you cast the sexual immoral person out from your midst, which is Deuteronomy 22. And the other one is the whole idea about the yeast, that after the Passover lamb is sacrificed for the next seven days, and what's the number seven represent? Completion, totality, the end. Uh, God completes the, the creation in seven days. Uh, the destruction of Jericho, which I believe is a foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ. It's, it's on the seventh day, they walk around the city seven times and blow the horns. So it's, it, it represents until the end, completion. So the point he's making is after the lamb has been sacrificed and those who've been circumcised are part of that feast, they have to get the yeast out until mm -hmm. the end. That's the point that God is teaching. And that's why it was, he was so emphatic. You need to practice not, not only observing the Passover, but the no yeast part as well uh, uh, for, for ages and ages yet to come. So, very clear teaching from the scriptures. Whether you're thinking Eastern or Western way of looking at the scriptures, it's reinforced, it's contained, it's embedded in the book of books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, what we're supposed to do. This teaching is so clear. 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and from the Old Testament, why do so few churches today follow this very simple instruction? Cast the wicked person out from your midst. Somebody who's involved in fornication? I mean, Jesus said, I gave Jezebel time to repent. It doesn't mean that there's no working with somebody and giving them an opportunity to repent. But why is it that the church in Thyatira wasn't doing it, the church in Corinth wasn't doing it, and most churches today don't do it? Why? It's not complicated. It's very simple. Influenced by the culture. Okay. People are influenced by the world around them. This is what Moses warned. He said, don't, don't copy the Egyptians where you came from. Don't copy the Canaanites where you're going. You have to be a distinct and separate people. Bardasan was saying, hey, the Christians, in whatever culture that they're in, they live by a different set of rules. Somebody gets involved in sexual immorality, we don't look the other way and we don't stone them. We put them out of our, put them out of our fellowship because we follow the rules of our King Jesus, and that's what he said. That's what he taught us. Um, one one uh, uh, sister mentioned to me uh, the reason why, she, in a conversation I had within the last week, why people aren't putting this into practice. And uh, this comes out of her mouth, not mine, but she said that uh, uh, the reason why, why churches don't do this is because they're afraid of losing money and members. What would happen to most churches if they put this into practice? How many people would they lose? How much money would they lose if they did this? Well, if it, if you compare it to the world, almost yeah. 50%. Okay, yeah. They, they, imagine, imagine a guy standing up giving a lesson knowing that, that half his budget and half his membership would be gone in, 20, in, in, in one hour and wouldn't come back. If somebody said, anybody in this church who's involved in sexual morality is going to be thrown out of the church and put that into practice, what would that do to most churches, including adulterous remarriage? So that's one reason, is people are afraid, afraid of that. Um, I mean, it's not just sex with somebody's father's wife. But if you put all this into practice, dealing with pornography, with greed, fornication, drunkenness, drug abuse, it's the same thing as drunkenness, really. What would happen to most churches? They'd be a whole lot smaller than they are today. Okay? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead for greed and lying by God. And the Bible says that the church was gripped with holy fear mm. and grew after that happened. Amen. So, be a smaller church, but it would be a God-fearing church and one that God could really use. Amen. And the yeast wouldn't spread throughout the whole church. Another reason, I think, is, uh, so one is just uh, fear of losing members of money. Another reason, I think, is cowardice. People are conflict avoiders. Most people really are conflict avoiders. I mean, who, want, who likes conflict anyway? But, but people are controlled by their cowardice 
and conflict avoidance. Ezekiel chapter 13, Ezekiel said that the false prophets were deceiving the people, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. There's no peace with God with the sin that was going on there. The people were saying, peace, peace, because they, they wanted to have, they didn't want to shake people up. They didn't want to get people upset. They didn't want to face the consequences. Uh, so it's conflict avoidance. Being more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing God. Another reason is sentimental attachments. Sentimental attachments to friends, family, or influential people in the church. Are you really going to do what God says regardless of the person? Another attitude is, uh, I, I was reading a paper, and uh, the, the writer had a very astute observation. I'll share it with you. He said, most churches treat the Bible as if it's their group's personal book, that they control the Bible. And their attitude is, it's okay to ignore certain teachings of the Bible as long as we're all doing it together. It's a lack of fear of God. Church leaders think that they can nullify the countercultural tough sayings and tough teachings of Jesus in the New Testament and Paul. Another reason people don't want to do this is because a very spiritual-sounding reason who am I to judge? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Who can cast the first stone? By taking scriptures out of context, as opposed to doing exactly what Paul said to do in exactly the same situation. That's right. Paul says, hey, God will judge those outside the church. We must judge those inside the church. We must cast out the wicked person as God showed the Israelites in the book of Exodus with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and as it says in Moses and as Jesus said to the church in Thyatira. Um, so, this is a tremendous, tremendously significant and important teaching that very few are willing to follow. And I hope that we will embrace it and realize that, that serious sin like this is more dangerous than Ebola or the Zika virus or AIDS, that it is a cancer that will spread throughout the whole church. And we need to treat it with that kind of seriousness, to, to, out of love for the person involved to hand them over to Satan so that hopefully they'll repent and they can come back to the church and to protect the church because the yeast will spread throughout it and destroy the whole church. Amen.